taken from Colossians 1, 13 to 20. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, good morning again. Welcome. Welcome to Trinity. Uh, we're in a series that we have entitled, All Things Hold Together. And we're looking at the book of Colossians. We are in week two of this series. And this is where the series title comes from, these verses. All things hold together. I want to get started with a story that I heard a few years ago. It's a story of Dr. Bill Bright, who is the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which has renamed itself uh, around the moniker Crew. Some of you are familiar with Campus Crusade. Maybe you were involved with it when you were in college, but it is a college campus ministry that has brought the gospel to hundreds of campuses and probably literally hundreds of thousands of college students, even high school students, among whom my mother was one of them, actually. She became a Christian through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. And as the story goes, Dr. Bill Bright was being interviewed along with others, and one of the questions that this panelist asked this group of Christian leaders was simply this, who is Jesus Christ to you? A personal question, a subjective question. Who is Jesus Christ to you? And the other Christian leaders on that panel, they offered genuine and heartfelt answers. They gave things that were orthodox and biblical. They talked personally, but when it came time for Dr. Bill Bright to give his answer, all he could offer the interviewer was tears. Like, who is Jesus Christ to you? And there are orthodox answers. But at this point, all this man could offer the crowd and his fellow group of panelists was tears of passion, right? gratitude and joy for who Jesus was to him. He couldn't give something from the gut and from the heart, though he was very articulate. All he could offer in that moment were tears. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I imagine... Paul penning, or if it was written before Paul penned it, Paul is quoting with tears flowing down his cheeks. This is how I imagine it. Because it is a colossal moment in theological writing, unparalleled through most of the New Testament, as is arguably the pinnacle, poetic, beautiful, uh, passionate encapsulation of the person, work, strength, humility, weakness, of Jesus Christ. 
right? The Son of God. It is an unparalleled passage in the entire New Testament. These verses are written down by the Apostle Paul. Just a little bit of background for a young church in Asia Minor within a Roman city called Colossae. You say, I've never even heard of Colossians. Well, most modern people have not, but it's just an ancient city, probably more like a small town with people who had heard the gospel, started to follow. They've got real issues that they're trying to work out. The Apostle Paul has never even been there. He has a friend by the name of Epaphras who's been giving him updates on the life and the lifestyle and the decisions and the things that are warring against their faith in Jesus Christ. And he is writing to them, the Apostle Paul, writing from prison in order to encourage them against this growing trend that said they needed a supplemental salvation plan. What's offered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ is not enough. It's not sufficient. You need a better life insurance policy for the life to come and the life you're living. Jesus is not sufficient. And Paul says that's not true. And he writes so that their hearts might be captured again by the sufficiency of Jesus because that church and this church will never grow unless your heart is enamored by the person of Jesus. And so Paul talks about that, the fullness of Jesus. That's point one for me. And then secondly, how do we reorient our lives? How do we react and respond to the fullness of Jesus? And then thirdly, we'll briefly look at a blueprint for following Christ and what it means to understand him as the head of all things, right? So the fullness of Christ, our response to Christ, and the blueprint of Christ. Look with me at verse 15. Verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So let's ask a basic question. Who is Jesus Christ? Paul answers this very clearly for us. He says, he's God the Son. Okay, easy for us to say he's the Son of God. But he says he's God the Son. He is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like in his character, you got to get to know Jesus. There are only four places in the entire New Testament for you, get, for you to personally get to know Jesus, his life, his story, his ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by eyewitnesses. You have to understand the character of Christ in order to understand the character of the invisible God. Jesus makes him visible. Hebrews 1.3 says something very similar. It says this, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is important because what he's saying is he's not a second-class God who's been employed by other second-class gods who this first-class God didn't really want to get involved in creation, so he made other gods, demigods, demigods, lots of gods, long lines of them so that they could separate themselves from touching creation because it's too gritty, it's too real, it's too raw for the holy God to get involved. So we created lesser gods to get involved. We're going to look at that in future weeks. That's part of what's going on in this storyline. Jesus is not truly God is what some of the heresies that are beginning to spread through this community, or he's a lesser God. Paul says no. 
That's not who Jesus is. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's not the first thing created. Verse 16 tells us that in, in him all things were created. They are created through him. In fact, they're created for him. Profound statement. All things are created by him. Most Christians in the room would go, okay, all things were created for him. We'll look at that as well. But let me ask a question about this word that's used multiple times in this passage. Firstborn. Where are my firstborns in the room, by the way? Let me, let me raise some hands. Raise them high, right? Be proud. All right. That explains a lot about you. you, you. Um, I, I am a firstborn. Explains a lot about me. My wife is a firstborn. Firstborn doesn't simply mean born chronologically first. It at least means that. But in ancient societies, and even in some modern societies, the firstborn, generally the son, was given special privileges and status amongst the family. He was the main inheritor of the family's wealth. The firstborn is first in rank, first in honor, in many ways, equal with the father. And that's how Paul is using this word firstborn here. He says, Jesus ranks first. He has the position of honor in the family and the cosmos. Why? Because he made it. That's why he is the firstborn of creation, because he is God. Look, some traditions and some religions have tried to point out that this text is saying that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of creation, the first created thing. Paul says he is the firstborn over all creation, not the firstborn of, first created thing. It says that he is the firstborn over all creation. In him, verse 17 says, all things hold together. Christ is a, div- a-, a kind of divine glue, right? A spiritual gravity that is holding all things together. Listen to what commentator David Garland writes. He says, scientists continue their search for the holy grail of science, the theory of everything the simple set of laws that explains every complex detail of our universe. This poem confesses that, in a way, Christ is the theological theory of everything. He is the key who unlocks the meaning and purpose of the universe, but he is not a set of physics laws. He is a person who has shown his love for us by giving his life. In him, all things hold together. Look how C.S. Lewis adds to that quote. Lewis writes, in the whole history of the universe, the laws of nature have never produced a single event. They are patterns to which every event must conform, provided only that it can be included to happen, induced to happen. A billiard ball hitting another billiard ball follows the laws of physics, but those laws did not set the ball in motion. Someone with a cue did. The laws are the pattern to which events conform. The source of the events must be sought elsewhere. Science, physics, biology hold together, the Bible says, because of Christ. These things can be compatible, but so do our marriages, so do our families, our jobs, our bodies, the present moment, the future. Christ holds all things together. He is the divine glue 
that brings the universe together as whole. He is a king unlike any other. He is the firstborn over creation. But then look what Paul adds to this. We're also told in verse 18, look there, that Jesus is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead. Image of the invisible God. Firstborn over all creation. The grand reason behind everything we see and experience in the physical world. Also the firstborn from among the dead. As the creator, the originator, the author of all things in the universe, including humanity, every human heart, Jesus knows how things work. He knows how you're supposed to function and flourish. He's the one who set us up in connection to him to find meaning, peace, flourishing. He knows that we were made for him and that sin has separated us from him, creating this ongoing suspicion in the human heart that God is not good, that God is not loving, that he's not faithful, that he's not reliable. Jesus also knew that the only way to provide peace and to reconcile a broken humanity and a broken world was to become a human being and then to die as a human being. This is what this text is telling us, this beautiful hymn in our place, as our substitute, as we read in verse 20, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He knows you. He holds it all together. Firstborn from creation, firstborn from the dead. What God is like that? Where can you find anything like this? This is the majesty and the mystery of of Colossians, these few verses. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, ready? Older brother to James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, friend of sinners, preachers and proclaimer of the kingdom of God, the man crucified as a common criminal despite his sinless record, is in fact the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of everything. He holds it all together. Head of the body of the church who knows you so well that he entered into your world to die in your place, to reconcile you to God, to tell you about the fullness because you ain't gonna find it anywhere else. It's written in poetry, by the way. It doesn't show up on the screen in that way, but it is a poem like Paul cannot keep it in. When you write a poem, you're going, common words are not enough. What he's saying is common words are not enough. There's a limit to what he can write. He says, but can you catch a glimpse of the fullness of this God? Secondly, our response to Christ, all right? The fullness of Christ and our response to him. Verse 15 says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, first in rank, first in honor, all kings and kingdoms and rulers and authorities were created by him and were created for him. He holds all things together, families, businesses, the election season of 2024 is going to be held together by Jesus Christ, all of the craziness, all of the chaos, Rulers and authorities held in his hand. He is the head of the church and has provided the grounds of your healing through bringing you into his family by reconciling you. Is this the sort of person you bring into your life as a helper and an assistant? Or is there something else? 
some other reaction. See, the truth of the gospel requires a reorientation. Spiritually speaking, a reorientation of your life looks like what the Bible calls repentance. Ready? At one point in my life, I lived for my career. It was everything. My life used to orbit around public opinion, what people thought of me. If somebody said jump, I'd ask how high. If somebody said dance, I'd say, do you prefer the gritty? Only if you're 25 and under do you understand that, all right? My life used to revolve around my relationships, whether I was dating or whether I was single. I was only somebody if I had somebody. These were my source of meaning and value. They offered me an identity But when the firstborn from the dead made his way into my life, my spirit, my soul, when he made his way into my heart, that began to change. Now, the reality is you don't have to reorient your life when Christ breaks in. You actually want to reorient your life when Christ breaks in. I don't have to repent Biblical language, which means kind of reorder and go in a new direction. I used to be going this way. Career was everything. Family was everything. Reputation was everything. Christ broke in. All it means is I begin to go in a new direction. I reorient. This is biblical repentance. I don't have to repent. It is my great joy to repent because of who this person is. If you believed these verses... In particular, 15 through 20, chapter 1 of Colossians, were true, what would change in your life? Great question. What would change in your life if you believed what is written about Jesus? First, we would begin to live as thankful stewards, humbly grateful for what we've been given rather than entitled owners demanding my best life now. So often Christianity looks like that. I'm not a grateful steward. I am a demanding owner. This text tells us that Jesus is the creator. You know what that means? He's the owner. You know what it means if he's the owner? Let's be very clear. You're not. If he's the owner, he creates all things. All things hold together in him. That means that I have a different relationship to all things. I'm actually not the owner. I'm the custodian amongst all of creation, set apart and distinct, given the privilege of governing and ruling and using my power to honor the owner. That's what it means to be a human. When we reverse this, we get way out of sync and our hearts are confused and we're wondering, why isn't life working? Because you're functioning as an entitled owner. When the Bible says you're supposed to be a humble steward, using what you have been given to honor him. If Jesus holds all things together, then when our wills conflict, we default towards his. And let's be honest, for some of you in the room, this is one reason you are hesitant to become a Christian. You don't want to submit your will, your preferences to someone else, even if that someone else happens to be God himself. You assume, you ready? That if you submit your will to Jesus, that you would always lose out, whether the issue was money or power or dating or sexuality. Whatever it is, his will could not be as enjoyable or life-giving, as gratifying as my will, but you would be wrong if you assume that. 
Why? Because he is the firstborn among creation. Colossians says that captured within Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. Like you can't find fullness anywhere else. Anybody say, I actually don't want fullness. Not interested. Nobody's going to say that. You are longing and looking and hoping and searching. And, and what the text is saying is, it's right here in the man Jesus Christ. Why can he be full? Because he is before all things. Again, some of you may push back. Because what we're saying is you're only going to find fullness in this concept of submission and surrender. And some of you in the room say, that's exactly another reason why I don't want to follow Jesus. He's always asking me to surrender and to submit. But the reality, friends, is there are two different motivations for surrendering and submitting. One is fear. The other is love. An army's been backed into a corner. They have nowhere to move forward. They realize that if they go backwards, they're up against something that they cannot retreat from. The army is encroaching, and so they throw up the white flag. They surrender. They say, either we're going to fight to the death or we surrender out of fear. Your power has overwhelmed mine. Out of fear, I give in. That's one version. Then there's another version that says, I'll give everything because I am deeply in love. And you see it all the time in young couples who are getting married. Man, I wish I could bring Paul and Kristen up here. You would see what it looks like to be smitten like a kitten. My man's watching rom-coms all the time. He's doing things that ordinarily outside of love he would not submit his will and preferences to. But he loves Kristen. He's committed to her and he says, I will surrender out of love for you. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. I'm not backed into a corner where God says, either you move forward or I'll crush you. He says, no, no, I want to love you. I've been crushed for you. Jesus backed into a corner. Jesus says, I won't move forward. But you know what? That wasn't out of fear. That was out of love for you. That's the gospel. That's what it means to surrender. That's what it means to submit. That's what it means to reorient around the fullness of Jesus. Look at Romans 11:36 then into 12:1. These verses go together. Romans 11:36 says for from him and through him and for him are all things, very similar to what we read in Colossians. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then 12:1. The next verse says therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. More than any other event in the entire universe, the cross tells you that you are valued, that you are loved, that you have purpose, that you have an identity, that you belong, that you have a family. God is for you. He is good. He's come for you in the person of Jesus Christ. You do not have to wonder if you have value. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to earn it through what you accomplish. You don't have to have people's public opinion. I'm always fearful about what other people say and think and do. There is freedom from that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He can set you free. This text tells us that when you believe that the gospel is the truest thing about you, the only response is to give your mind, your heart, your body. 
because you have peace with God. Not because you need it, not because you're hungry for it, but because Jesus died to give it. I have given you peace. Give me everything in response. He's given it all. My life is now lived in response to Christ. This is what it looks like to have peace with God, right? to move toward him because of his move toward us. So lastly and quickly, the fullness of Christ, our response to him, and now the blueprint. Just a glimpse of this, all right? The picture painted for us here in Colossians 1 is of a God of self-giving love. This is what these verses are all about. That's who God is at the core and at the essence. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn from the dead. And you were created in his image. Every time you hear the word image, you should be thinking to yourself, the Bible talks a lot about image. I need to know who I am. I'm created to be like this God. I need to know who this God is. I look to Jesus as the blueprint for humanity. See, and we learn that Jesus is the head of the body. You're part of his body. He's the head, but he sets the pattern. He is the head of the body, the church. He lays down the blueprint for what it means to be truly human. And we find that the pattern is self-giving love. This is the pattern of your life that will give you the most fullness when you find it in Christ. The pattern of Jesus making his way from heaven to earth, which is what these verses are about, the incarnation is what that's called, he incarnates into our world, is built around the pattern of giving up and moving in. That's what Jesus did. He gave up power, he gave up reputation, he gave up proximity in order to come near you, to love you, to die for you. Giving up and moving in. And this is what you were made for. This is the pattern of true humanity. You see it in Jesus Christ, the image of God, but you're made in his image. And some of you say, but look, man, that sounds like a death, doesn't it? Like death to self, maybe death to ambition, death to being at the center of all things, death to life revolving around you, death to the search for fullness in anything other than Jesus, even those things that feel good in the moment. But when you give this up, when you forfeit what you want, to live into what Christ wants. You know what's the blueprint? Death always gives way to resurrection. Certain things in your life certainly die, but then you find the fullness, man, beginning to bubble up, beginning to bubble over, and this is what God has for you. This is the fullness of Christ manifest in a human spirit, in a human life. Self-giving love always costs you something. That's what you're made for because you're made in Jesus' image. What's your mind and heart say right now as we kind of made our way through the pinnacle text, one of the most beautiful texts in the entire New Testament, a mountaintop, a roller coaster, all about the person and the work of Jesus. You could intellectualize it, leave it on the shelf, or you could say, is it true? And if it's true, how do I then live? You cannot remain the same. You cannot just come and go. Jesus will not allow it. He goes, you have to respond to me. How will you respond? What does it look like to take a step forward with him? It's simple. Jesus, I want you to reorient my life. I want to biblically repent. I was going that way, but because of the fullness of God breaking into my world, I want a new life. I want to go in a new direction. If that's you, it's that 
simple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your profound, costly love for us. Love that brings people to yourself. Love that pursues families and children. Love that comes after my mother through a ministry to college students on a campus. Love that is relentless and can show up on a rainy day in San Diego, in a school where a church is meeting. But this text tells us that there is a costliness to the gospel, that you gave up and you moved in, but you did it for love's sake. But we don't want to just read about you. We want to live in honor of you. We have been reconciled through your life, through your blood, through your body. Change us, we pray, deeply on the inside. We need more of you. We need more of you. Holy Spirit, continue to move in this space while we come to fellowship with you through this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.